One of the problems facing the financial authorities is that there are human, the financial system is not made up of computers. It's human beings that make up, make all the decisions. And if a financial institution or a bank or a hedge fund or even individuals perceive the government as stepping in to protecting them against failure, well, they are incentivized to take more risk. Welcome to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, does regulation make banks riskier? The post-2008 financial regulations were meant to put an end to financial crises and bank bailouts. But from the LDI crisis last September to the collapses of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, it seems the old dynamic is back to haunt us and perhaps back with a vengeance. What is driving these crises and is there a way to design our financial system in a way that doesn't ensure that we keep reliving history? To discuss this very important topic, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. John Danielson. He's the Director of Systematic Risk Centre at the London School of Economics, the author of dozens of academic articles, as well as a, a very interesting and fascinating book, The Illusion of Control, Why Financial Crises Happen and What We Can and Can't Do About It which came out in August 2022. Now, first of all, congratulations on the uh, timeliness of a book. Uh, it's always a, an impressive a, achievement in itself to get out a book just, to, just in time for it to uh, come, come to the fore. Um, I wish I could have said I timed it, but I guess this, this is just bad luck. <laughs> bad, bad luck. Bad, bad luck for the rest of us. Good luck for you, I guess. But I mean, I kind of want to start the basics here, which is what, what are we trying to get out of the financial system? What is the, the purpose of, of these banks that are often derided and, and hated much in our modern world? What you need the financial system because the, it, it is what lubricates and makes the economy go. It's a way to transfer money between people to allow savers to save and investors to borrow and allows us to borrow to buy a house and save for our old age. And it's an essential part of the economy. And without a financial system, there is no economy. If you take two countries that successfully managed not to have such a system, Cuba and North Korea, <laughs> they are pretty unappealing places. But the problem with finance is that it has a tendency to get itself into and get overexcited, if you will, and that lead that gives you too many crises. But again, the opposite tendency is also very strong: is to we need to suppress all crises and squeeze all risk out of the system. But of course, what that means is the economy will not grow, and we will all suffer. So it's a delicate balance to find what we really want to get out of it. But to my mind, the objective of the financial system is to make the economy grow without too many costly crises. And I, I suppose in the, the question of risk comes up quite prominently. What, what, what is risk and what, what is this kind of systematic risk that is really the focus of your study? So my, so, so my study and the centre I run at the LSE, the Systemic Risk Centre, is the definition of that is a costly financial crisis that has a, has a chance of spilling out into the real economy and causing a recession. We have broadened the definition of LSE and we, we consider it to include anything that makes the financial system or threats to the financial system not deliver on its promises 
to society. So does the system, financial system do what it wanted to do or not? To my mind, that is systemic risk. And uh, I think you, you kind of quite well unpack uh, the idea that uh, effectively we're, we're trying to get to kind of a Goldilocks where you don't have these kind of constant crises, um, banks do take what is appropriate necessary risk. But you, you analyze, and I think you call it a kind of scientific socialism at one point, the, the way risk is often understood by, by banks and financial institutions as well as regulators. They use these risk models that um, create, claim a certain sense of preciseness but often aren't accurate. So the, the problem with regulating and understanding risk in, in the financial system is the financial system, I think, is the most complex phenomena human beings have ever created. It is, in effect, infinitely complex. And risk is such a multifaceted, complex system. What is risk to you is not risk to me. What is risk to my mother is not a risk to the government. So we all have a different concept of risk, just depending on where we are and what we are doing in life. And that means sort of a one-size-fits-all risk measure just isn't really suitable for purpose. But the real problem is, is a basic technical problem. We can measure the temperature in this room. You can keep the temperature steady 22 degrees. And if the, if the temperature goes up, you turn on the AC. And if the temperature goes down, you, you turn on the radiators. You can keep the temperature steady. And there's a belief that risk can be measured with the same degree of accuracy. And then we can just use that to tune the economy to get what we want. But the problem is risk is not measurable. We can only see risk by how it impacts on the financial markets, usually by how prices fluctuate. And if prices fluctuate little, risk is low, and there's a lot of fluctuations, risk is high. But that is highly misleading. And using such a way to think about risk or such a risk measure is at the core of my notion of the illusion of control. Because what happens is, from, a, from society's point of view, if you look at all possible outcomes, from the worst to the best, the data lives in the middle when nothing really bad happens and nothing really good happens. <laughs> so we measure things really, really well in the middle of the distribution, which is the part of it we, we care least about. We care about the extremes the really good outcomes and the really bad outcomes. That's what matters to us. But there's very little data there. And the problem is the way this is often done by the authorities and by banks is that you sort of measure the, tip, the risk of typical outcomes and then you say, ah, I'm going to project to the tails, to the good and the, to the bad, and hoping that projection is accurate. But to my mind, it's highly inaccurate. And therefore, if you try to control society, by just looking at data and risk models, you end up making the wrong decision decision of again and again and again. And I think there's an interesting kind of parallel here to one of our intellectual idols, which is uh, Frederick Hayek, who talks about the knowledge problem, how that the struggle central bankers face, or sorry, central planners face, uh, as well as central bankers for that matter, is that it's uh, very hard to understand the kind of social complexities of, of the, the, the world. And therefore, you know, you, you try to pull certain levers and do certain things, but doesn't necessarily have the consequences you think it will. Um, I'm also kind of um, reminded of some of the work of Nassim Taleb on kind of long tail mm. black swan events. Um, and he obviously came to fame around the financial crisis. I mean, I suppose another, you know, maybe it's not a, a, a systematic risk within the financial system, but if you look at what's happened in recent years with COVID-19, for example, um, you would have said the risk of the financial system was quite low until 
March 2020, and then suddenly there's loads of risk. And, but that risk, of course, was always there. It was just unknowable and unseeable. Well, Hayek is the reason I became an economist, and, and he's one of my two, I think he's one of the two best economists ever. And when he wrote what I think is his best piece of work, Use of Knowledge in Society in 1944, he said that the, the technical problem is, and he was talking about central planning at the time, but I think it applies equally to what we are discussing here. He said, the farmer and the factory owner and the worker knows much more about what's going on on the ground than a bureaucrat in Moscow or Washington or New York or, or London. The person producing things, they know what works and what doesn't work. And if you try to aggregate that knowledge up to a handful of some government ministry, you make systematically the wrong decisions. And that fundamentally is the reason why the Soviet economy failed. And the way we are now, I think the, the, the way the financial authorities, they've sort of fallen into the same tra trap as Gosplan in the Soviet Union, <laughs> which is that they believe that someone sitting at the Bank of England, they can sort of measure all serious risk throughout the British economy and, and, and the global economy. And then, so, and, and then some bureaucratic entity can then fine tune that risk to get somehow the optimal outcome for the United Kingdom. And what we're increasingly seeing is financial regulations are used for essentially political purposes, which is or central planning sort of through the back through through the back door and I call this and I call this in my book and other pieces scientific socialism because when Karl Popper another great LSE professor he defined the concept of scientific socialism as saying if you can't falsify something if you can't verify if something is true or not true then it's not scientific and I think risk, me risk measurements are fundamentally not verifiable, and meaning they are pseudo-scientific in the language of Karl Popper. And trying to use such risk measurements to control society, as we're increasingly doing, I think is fraught with danger. Um, I, I think you talk about the, this idea of the modern philosophy of financial regulation, um, which, which really leans into exaggerating this issue. Um, where regulators come in, they try to calm markets, they, they, they claim to have learned the lessons from the past, and then um, they, they pretty much don't. Um, and COVID-19, you wrote a, a paper about how basically they, they said to themselves, job well done. Um, they, they thought everything had gone well through COVID-19, but it's not so clear that that's the case, is it? Well, the, one of the problems facing the financial authorities is that there are human, the financial system is not made up of computers, it's human beings that make up, make all the decisions. And if a financial institution or a bank or a hedge fund or even individuals perceive the government as stepping in to protecting them against failure, but they are incentivized to take more risk. This is just called moral hazard and economics. And what we saw in the aftermath of the government interventions in March 2020, now, I'm not disputing the need for helping people in COVID, but I am concerned with how we helped financial institutions in COVID. And what we see is that, and I've been looking at this by using very long dated and deep out of the money options. And what we see is that immediately when the government stepped in to help the financial system, the cost of insuring against very large losses sharply dropped. Uh, 
Hmm. And that means moral hazard. The banks perceive the interventions as saying, when things get bad next time, we will also bail you out next time. And that's the danger with government interventions is because they change behavior, they can lead to bad outcomes in the future. So even if on the face of it, it might be a laudable objective to create calm at the moment, to calm the troubled water, poor oils of, or troubled water, whatever metaphor you, you prefer, the long-term consequences can be very severe. And I think what we are seeing now with Credit Suisse and the SVB bank failure last month is exactly the danger from that is it, it, it creates yet more moral hazard and, and, and will lead to undesirable risk taking in the future. So we have that moral hazard element as well as the, the fact that the regulators will come in kind of in, in some awareness that they're creating moral hazard and they'll try to manage risk, as you've said. They'll, they'll try to come in and specify capital requirements then define what counts as capital um, and basically uh, encourage hurting effectively of the banks, that the banks will, will all um, exactly tick the boxes that are necessary to pass, for example, the stress testing that's done of their financial institutions. So it, I thought there's an interesting case in the SVB collapse where there was a lot of concern that um, SVP had successfully lobbied not to have to follow the stress testing regime. But even if they had been followed exactly what the stress tests were at that point, they wouldn't have um, come up with any issues because the um, stress tests were presuming the opposite would happen. The stress tests were assuming that interest rates could go down, not that they could go up. So the way regulation seems to operate in response to moral hazard um, also seems to encourage some level of risk taking because it pushes all the banks in the same direction. Indeed, I mean, there's a conceptual, important conceptual issue at work here. If you want to get the best out of the financial system, you can approach it from two different directions. You can either build buffers, both capital and liquidity buffers, and if something, and, and, and as the interpretation from the Credit Suisse and SVP fallout is, ah, we didn't measure all the risk, let's monitor the system more intrusively, get more data and raise the buffers to protect us. The problem is if you have buffers to protect us, they have to be so high that the banks cease to function as institutions that intermediate money and the economy suffers. It's, it's very costly. And the secondly, exactly as you alluded to, the problem is that you squeeze all diversification out of the system. You make the banks increasingly similar. They have to measure risk in the same way. They have to react to it in the same way. In the technical language, this is called pro-cyclical. So we all behave in the same way. But a problem is if you all behave in the same way, we all buy similarly risky assets and sell risky assets. And when a shock comes along, could be COVID, could be Russia invading Ukraine, whatever will be the shock next year. What happens now increasingly is that we all have to sell the same risky assets at the same time, which then causes the price to collapse, amplifying the crisis. And I think anything that pushes financial institutions in becoming more and more similar is the wrong approach. In, in finance, we have this very simple concept called diversification. You buy a broad-based portfolio so that if one goes sour, you are still protected and you still make money elsewhere. And I think that same concept of diversification really should be the guiding principle in financial regulations because that, what that will do is it ex takes advantage of the inherent stabilizing forces in, in, in the system. And I think the financial system is amazingly good at absorbing shocks. 
And what you want is, if a shock comes along, you buy and I sell. Mm. In, the, in aggregate, you and I, we create a random noise that is not too damaging. The worst thing is if we both buy or both sell. So therefore, if you make the financial institutions different from each other, you diversify the system and you increase the shock absorption capacity. And the benefit of that is financial stability goes up, the cost of regulation goes down, and the economy prospers more than it would otherwise. It's a win-win-win solution. Mm. But that's not the direction we are taking at the moment. And, and in, indeed, another um, big issue with the regulation, not only does it, uh, I suppose, push everyone towards the same risk, but it's also it's a political process. And the, the, one of the classic examples here is the, the, the very low risk rating of EU government bonds um, that very much had a huge impact when um, Greece turns out that weren't quite as solvent as we thought, particularly on the Cypriot banks that had put loads of their money into these unstable Greek government bonds. So there's also, despite the scientific claims of these risk systems, they're not necessarily going to be perfectly scientific, are they? Well, there are two important problems there. The first of all, as Greece was defaulting, and, uh, and therefore the Cypriot banks that invested in the Greek bonds were failing, the EU maintained, and the European Central Bank maintained, and the Bank of England maintained, right, because the law is the same here as in the, as in the European Union, it's the same in Japan, the same in the United, it's the same law everywhere. They maintained that, that risk was, that, those bonds were riskless. And why do the governments do that? Well, the government of the United Kingdom does not want the, the bank buyers of gilts, government bonds, to risk weigh them because that will increase the borrowing costs. So the governments pass a law saying for banks, for the, purpose of, for the purpose of accounting, government bonds are riskless. Well, the benefit is it makes it, cheap, easy, it makes it cheaper for the treasury to borrow, but the downside risk is you don't appreciate the necessary risk along the way. And we saw one problem of that in, in Cyprus 10 years ago, and the same problem arose with the SVB Bank in the US last month. Do you have any confidence that potentially, I suppose, new technologies can solve the knowledge problem, that perhaps AI uh, risk monitoring could identify risks that haven't been seen by human eyes uh, and for both internal processes within banks as well as um, by regulators? I think Hayek would tell us no, and I'm, <laughs> I'm with Hayek on that. The I think no matter how much data you have and how much you model, any, any artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithm has to be by definition backward looking. So as, we said, as you said earlier, if all the data is in the middle of the distribution, day-to-day -day common events, well, the, the AI and the machine learning algorithm has nothing to train on. So if they don't see these extreme outcomes, it's not going to learn about what causes the really good ones or the really bad ones. And I think that's exactly where human beings come in, because what we, as human beings, we know history, we know philosophy, we know ethics, we know psychology, and it's that, and we know history, very important. And the combination of those fields is what allows us to navigate the deep waters of the system, to avoid the worst outcomes, and hopefully to achieve the best. And I, at least there is no AI 
currently conceived of or on the horizon that can get anywhere near to that. We can't speak to what the AI might be in 10, 20, 30 years, but it's not conceivable today. So an issue where I think you might slightly differ to some other economists associated with the IEA is this question of whether or not there perhaps should be almost no banking regulation. There are, um, in a previous edition of this podcast, I spoke to um, some of our banking history um, focused uh, economists who will basically make an argument around free banking in Scotland and say what we need to do is just end the world of bailouts, just put them aside, That'll we need to let banks fail and that will encourage the institutions to take the appropriate level of risk rather than assuming that you can, I suppose, use regulation in a way to in- encourage them to be less risky, just let them figure it out for themselves and, and remove the moral hazard. Do you think that's, uh, what, do, what do you make of that as a I, model? I, I think it's just silly. I mean, the problem is, right, even if you politically are free market oriented, and if, even if you think you should leave the institutions of the financial system to sink and swim by whatever they do by themselves, you have to recognize that we live in a democracy. And what happens is, after every single crisis, is the population of the country says the government has to protect us. Mm. So if the worst thing, and we have seen this several times in the past, if you decide we are not going to provide any bailouts and we can let everybody sink and swim by whatever they do themselves, when the crisis comes along, the political pressure on the government will be so strong that the government is forced to react. We saw that in this country in 1864, and we've seen it in many other countries since. And the worst thing that can happen is if the central bank and if the government has to react without being prepared, that's when you get the really bad, disastrous, expensive outcomes. So even though I think even if one really wants a free market solution, I don't think it's politically feasible. So uh, another economist associated with the IEA, Andrew Lillico, um, suggests, I, I suppose agrees with your political economy analysis. His response to this all is to say, well, in that case, what we should do is just have, and I think even Milton Friedman suggested this side at one point, 100% federal, uh, 100% reserve banking. So rather than banks taking risks with our money, you have one type of account that we can put our money in. They, they just keep it there in cash. They don't do any funny business with it. You can have a separate account where there's risk taking, but you know the main core of our cash is just kept in a 100% safe way. Uh, is, is, there, is there any appeal to that as an alternative model as well? I think it's equally silly. I mean, if you want to get a mortgage to buy a house, the bank has to get the money from somewhere. And the way the bank makes a mortgage or lends money to companies, and we have to remember the drivers of the economy are small and medium-sized enterprises, the company with 50 employees or 100 employees. And in the United Kingdom and most other countries, that money comes from banks. Mm. So where is the bank going to get the money to lend to those companies? Well, it's your deposits. So the money you put into Barclays and HSBC and all the banks is then lent out to all the small and medium-sized enterprises that that make the British economy grow. If you have 100% reserves as, as being proposed, well, where are you going to get the money to lend to companies and how is the economy going to grow? And if you don't, you, you can't really solve that because there, and there's a protection for the regular, for, for people to keep money in, in, in the bank in that 
The banks made a, make a huge amount of loans. They take a lot of risk, but because the bank is relatively large, because we have deposit insurance, we are protected. And I think the, one of the biggest misconceptions and the dangerous misconceptions around finances, we don't want risk. We want to squeeze, de-risk, squeeze risk out. Risk is good. And I think this country needs more risk, mm. not less risk. That is the only way you, you can get new innovative companies setting up shop and, 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 the, and for the economy to grow, that someone is willing to provide the money to help those companies. And that person or the institution has to be willing to take losses if things go sour. And if all the money ends up being saved in a 100% reserve account in a bank, well, these are no longer banks. And then nobody's taking risk and the economy can't grow. So I think the whole notion is silly. Um, just kind of a, a final thought then on how we kind of move to where we are today to a world of diversified financial institutions. What, what would be, uh, I suppose, what, what steps should regulators take? What should be, the, does regulation need to be redesigned from, from the bottom up in a way that um, tells the regulators that this is their, go their new goal is diversity, uh, do the regulators already have the power to do this? They're just choosing not to, they just need to think about this in a different way. How would they design the system to encourage that kind of diversity of, of financial institutions that you'd like to see? So I think a big problem is that the regulators, and I have a lot of sympathy for how they do the job. The, the, uh, the, the problem is if something goes wrong, they are punished. But if things go well, they are not rewarded. <laughs> so the, the regulators become excessively risk averse. And if we solve that problem, and if they get some part of the upside, then we are more likely to see them align. You want to align the objectives of the people making decisions in the, in the agencies to that of, that of society. You want to encourage them to allow different financial institutions, especially institutions with new innovative business models to set up shop. So that if, you, if you come to the regulator and say, I have a new idea, what happens, happens at the moment is, they will, they'll of course say, of course, we're all in favor, but then you get so many hurdles and so much bureaucracy that at the end of the day, you give up and it's really hard to get a license to operate as a new financial institution in this country. And that should change. So if the financial authorities are not only open, but they're actively encouraged to allow new forms of finance and new, new financial institutions, I think the system would get diversified fairly quickly to the benefits of all. But of course, why does that not happen is the incumbents don't like it. I mean, if you're a big bank, you like things the way they are. You don't want that competition. And if you're a regulator, you like the current system because it makes your job easier. So we have to overcome that dual opposition. But if you manage that, I think we will all benefit. Well, Dr. John Denilson from the London School of Economics Center for Systematic Risk, thank you so much for joining the IA podcast. Um, if you're interested in learning more about this topic, I can, I can strongly recommend uh, Dr. Danielson's book, The Illusion of Control, from, which came out in August 2022. If you're enjoying the IEA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider, or you can also watch uh, the podcast on YouTube. And you can learn more about the IEA by visiting our website, iea.org.uk.